My name is Declan Tomlinson, and I am an undergraduate research fellow at the LMU Global Policy Institute. Today, we are interviewing Professor Magni, an assistant professor of political science at LMU. Magni has written for the Washington Post and Politico, and his work is featured in the New York Times, 538, and many others. We will discuss his work on social contexts and group behavior and how those factors shape political behavior. We hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for joining us today. We at Global Policy Institute really appreciate um, you being here. I want to start off asking a question we're asking all of the LMU faculty, and that is, how did you find yourself at LMU? Like, how did you get here? Okay, well, thank you. First of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Um, how did I find myself at LMU? I was uh, strongly attracted by the fact that LMU is an institution that values both teaching and research, and I care about both of those aspects of my job. And so that was something that was from the beginning very interesting to me. And then uh, as I found out more about LMU, I was very impressed by the strong commitment to social justice. It's something that is important to be. Much of my research focuses on minority groups, including immigrants, LGBTQ people. And so finding an institution like LMU that values and encourages this type of research was uh, important. Then when I, when I, the first time I came to LMU for my interview, I was very impressed by the students that I met in the classroom. And then we went for lunch and I've been strongly impressed by the students um, ever since the students that I met in the classroom with whom I work on research. And so that's been a big point. And then finally, the location, Southern California, Los Angeles, the beautiful campus, these are all very good selling points. Yeah, the location really is a seller, I feel like. And Los Angeles is just such a destination. So it's like, like you can't go wrong with that. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. So you talked about your research that you kind of do on minority groups and LGBTQ politics and immigrants. So your, your research kind of focuses a lot on like the social contexts and group identities um, that shape political behavior. Um, I drew that from your website. So, And also you're a very prolific op-ed writer for the Washington Post on LGBTQ um, identities in politics. So can you share any insight onto that and any changes you have seen in the last uh, presidential election like with these issues? And also, is this like a uniquely U.S. issue or is this kind of a global issue with like these identities? Mm, um, yes, yeah, so let me start with LGBTQ identities in politics. Mm, um, first, uh, well, my research focuses mostly on LGBTQ politicians and political candidates, why they run for office, um, whether they face discrimination by voters, which voters are more likely to discriminate against them, or maybe which voters are more likely to support them over straight or cisgender candidates. And I analyze the reasons behind voter bias. Um, and this is, uh, and I do this in a comparative perspective, because this is an issue that is important, not just in the United States, but um, in uh, in many countries around, around the world. Uh, we have seen an increase in the last two decades of openly gay, lesbian, and to some extent transgender politicians in office, not just in the Western world, but even um, in Asia, in Latin America. Um, 
and LGBTQ rights are an especially important topic these days uh, because on the one end we've seen in recent years a very rapid increase in support for LGBTQ rights um, in many places around the globe. But we have also seen a backlash coming from radical right parties, from Poland to Hungary, from Chechnya to the Philippines. And so it is very much an issue that is at the center of political discourse in many countries. In terms of how things have changed with the election of Biden, um, well, they changed quite a lot. So today, the or actually yesterday, the Equality Act was introduced again in the House. There would be federal legislation prohibiting discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. And we have now a president who is personally committed to uh, the promotion of the LGBTQ rights. Biden was uh, one of the first uh, uh, politicians on the national stage to embrace same-sex marriage before President Obama did. And Biden has been quite vocal also with regard to trans rights. He once said that trans rights are civil rights, they're the civil rights issue of our time. So we have the White House that is fully on board. And then the other important change that follow the November election is that Democrats won the Senate um, up until last year uh, with the Republicans controlling the Senate. The Equality Act that had been passed in the House was never brought up for a vote by former Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Now we have uh, um, democratic, uh, a Democratic majority that is strongly committed, mm -hmm. so we can be more optimistic about this. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't know that, uh, like Biden supported before Obama. That's, I think that's like a fact that a lot of people would find surprising. So that's interesting. Yeah. Well, no, I would say, um, well, uh, he, he did it in a press interview and supposedly, uh, Barack Obama didn't know that Biden uh, would come out in support of uh -huh. same-sex marriage. And so then Obama was rushing to, uh, also expressing yeah. support for same-sex marriage. And with regard to trans rights, I think um, part of the reason that explain Biden's vocal support is uh, his connection with Sarah McBride, who is uh, um, the mm. first openly trans um, state senator elected in U.S. history. She's from Delaware. She used to work for Bob Biden uh, when Bob Biden was running in Delaware. That's when she met Joe Biden, they connected. And so the personal relationship with a young trans woman at the time uh, arguably had a, an impact on Joe Biden and his view on transgender rights. Yeah. And I, I feel like a lot of his views come from like those like interpersonal relationships that he's created. But um, so additionally to your LGBTQ work, uh, you've published research on economic inequality and the effect of inequality and immigration attitudes. Um, do you mind sharing your work and like your findings that you found with your past research? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, as you, as you said very well, part of my research looks at how economic inequality influences political attitudes and behavior. And specifically, I'm interested in exploring how economic inequality shapes social identities and intergroup relations, and specifically the relations between immigrants and native citizens. So what happens uh, to public opinion on immigration when economic inequality 
grows in uh, um, in a country. And what my research finds is that economic inequality generates what I call selective solidarity. When economic inequality is high, people become more willing to support uh, um, economic redistribution and welfare programs, but only if welfare programs and redistribution benefits native citizens. Mm -hmm. They're not willing to support programs that uh, uh, benefit immigrants. And so what we see is that under economic inequality, there is an increased gap between willingness to support immigrants and willingness to support uh, native citizens. And what I find in my research is that this happens because economic inequality, on the one hand, convinces people that society is unfair. Society is not offering economic opportunity for people to improve their own situation. When inequality is high and the rich, think about the billionaires, the top 1%, they appear so distant that no matter how hard I work, I will never get there. I will never be Jeff Bezos, mm-hmm. even if I'm working 80 hours a week. And so yeah. there is this idea that society is not offering people um, a way to climb the social ladder. At the same time, economic inequality activates an in-group, out-group thinking, which is a tendency to see society and life uh, through an us versus them mentality. Uh, and Inequality does this by separating the rich from the rest, the the political elite from ordinary people. And so these two components, the idea that there are not enough resources, and I see myself and people like me in competition with other groups in society, help us explain why inequality leads to negative attitudes towards immigrants. Immigrants are uh, the outgroup by definition, especially in the context of inequality, economic resources, and um, welfare redistribution, because immigrants have been, um, not only because immigration is a top political uh, issue in many Western countries, but also because they've been targeted as a scapegoat by political actors, political entrepreneurs, especially populist radical rights politicians. And like, again, with like just the transition of administrations, do you see like a difference already with attitudes or are they so ingrained in like American society right now that it it won't change anytime soon? Um, Yeah, to that, I I am probably less optimistic than what I am on LGBTQ (laughs) rights because what I find in my research is that um, in general, when we look at preferences for admission policies, so which immigrants we welcome into the country, we see that there is a difference across type of immigrants. Usually people prefer immigrants who are white, Christian, more highly educated, come from nearby countries. And we see that there is also a difference depending on the respondents, the people we ask to. And so usually democratic supporters, progressive individuals, people with higher level of education tend to be more supportive of immigration. Mm. And so to some extent, we can expect a change given that Democrats now are in power in Congress, in the White House. But also what I find in my research is that if the question is about welfare for immigrants and so economic redistribution of material resources to immigrants, well, we don't see a dramatic partisan divide even democratic voters, even progressive voters, even highly educated citizens in the US tend to believe that American citizens should have priority in access to limited resources. And so I'm not sure that the change in administration is enough to 
change this uh, uh, this opinion about uh, who should receive economic support yeah um, yeah i i feel that it is hard to be optimistic with that especially yeah just with the polarization of yeah i don't know but um yeah no exactly yeah. you're right i think you raise an important point exactly with the polarization we have seen many democratic candidates and politicians being quite shy about immigration because they're worried uh, about immigration being a topic that may drive away some of the potential moderate uh, voters that otherwise may support them. Yeah. Well, and I understand you're currently working on new research over like this topic of immigration. You've like, you've touched on it already, but um, how is that like process going? And like, do you mind sharing insight on just like the publication process of getting a research paper published? Because um, I, I had you in class and you gave us like some good like tips and just kind of like what it's like. So uh, it'd be interesting for everyone to hear kind of the process. Yeah, the first thing I would say is that it's usually a multi-year process, at least in political science or in the social science, which starts with a, um, with reading um, about an issue, a topic that you're interested in, in order to get an idea of what's going on, what are the type of questions that uh, have been addressed, that have been addressed, and so once you find a topic you're interested in, you try to figure out uh, what your contribution can be, what is that we don't know yet that we need to shed light on, and so you try to narrow down your readings, and then you move to the data collection phase. So you need to gather. Um, for instance, uh, uh, survey data, or if you're doing uh, an experiment, you need to find participants for your experiment so that you can test uh, your theory and the hypothesis that you have. And so you work mm -hmm. on this, and then you start uh, writing uh, drafts, presenting uh, your theory, your hypothesis, and your analysis with the results that you have. And usually what we do, we present uh, drafts at conferences, workshops, seminars, so that we can get some feedback from other scholars who work in the field on similar topics. And then when you feel that your draft is in a good shape, that's when it's time to send out uh, the manuscript for review. The way it works, uh, you can choose uh, a journal in the discipline, and you can submit it only to one journal at a time. So you cannot send the same paper to three different okay. journals. And what happens then, there is an editor of the journal who finds uh, usually two or three anonymous reviewers who are going to read the manuscript, are going to, again, provide feedback and comments, and uh, uh, are going to come up with a recommendation to the editor, which is going to be either um, reject the manuscript or maybe uh, revise the manuscript following some of the comments and then submit again to the journal or publish the manuscript as it is. And then uh, what happens is that if you can publish it there, well, that's the end of the process. If the journal decides that they're not going to publish uh, your paper, the process starts again. And so you need to find another journal and restart uh, the submission process. And this, uh, this phase, uh, when you submit a manuscript and then you have reviewers looking at your work, it can last... Uh, it can vary a lot. It can some some journals are rather quick, and so maybe within rather quick, so maybe within two months you have an answer. Other journals may take six months or even more, and during that time you're just waiting. You can send to another journal. So that's why the end it can take years from the time you start working on yeah. a project to the time the article is finally published. Wow! Yeah, no, that's 
<laughs> that's a that's a very long process. And I, I assume it's it would probably be humbling too after like having a lot of people just critiquing your work like after like w- one after the other like journals that you submit to. Exactly, especially because you realize pretty soon that uh, when it's anonymous reviewers or critiquing your work very well they they don't hold back <laughs> so yeah yeah. It's, yeah that's tough but okay so i have one last question and um it revolves around the class you teach um politics of the global economy this is a class that i took with you last semester and i really enjoyed it so thank you um it definitely covers all of these topics that you've like talked about with immigration attitudes and identity politics definitely pay, play a role um I I just want to ask, like, with the again, with like the whole transition to the Biden administration, um, like it seems that like there's a new political uh, global political doctrine that's not the America first doctrine under the former president. Um, Like, how do you see this changing in the next term? And like, do you think it will revert back or do you think maybe there's a little optimism in this uh, in this topic? Um, well, I think the optimism is not misplaced. I think in this case, I think we can expect with the new Biden administration a return to a multilateral approach. So what we have seen during the Trump administration was uh, um, what is sometimes called aggressive bilateralism, in which, as you said, the idea was America first and the aggressive bilateralism was evident in some of the decisions, for instance, the trade war with China or the decision mm-hmm. to set aside mega regional trade agreement in the Pacific, in the Atlantic Ocean that had been started previously by the Obama administration. We've seen also this bilateralism in the renegotiation of the NAFTA treatment and North American free trade agreement between the US, Canada and Mexico. And so we have seen an administration that was... Uh, um, more often than not willing to go alone and not very happy about working within international organization. Um, with Biden, with the Biden administration, I think we can expect a return to um, a multilateral approach, which is already evident in some of the decision of the early decision, for instance, uh, rejoining the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, yeah. or we can think about uh, the... Uh, strength and cooperation with the World Health Organization to um, to fight the global pandemic. So that's one point. I think we can also expect uh, um, a rebuilding of traditional alliances, especially with European partners um, that were set aside again by the Trump administration. And Europe has become quite mistrusting of the Trump administration over time. So this point is going to take time, especially because uh, in the last few years, the European Union, when uh, they couldn't count uh, on the US always as a stable partner, they become more autonomous on the global stage, especially in their negotiation with China. And so it will take time to rebuild a strong partnership between the US and the European allies. And then more broadly, I think we could expect a more diplomatic approach, maybe less muscular approach. we have heard today or yesterday about uh, the Biden administration uh, uh, offered to restart negotiation with uh, Iran that had been interrupted by the Trump administration. So definitely, I think we can expect uh, um, a stronger cooperation, 
the global level and specifically stronger partnership with traditional allies. Great, yeah. So, so it is optimistic. There, there, there's a there's a sliver of optimism there. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, that's great. Thank you so much, Professor Magni, for joining us on the podcast today. Um, I really enjoyed our discussion, and I hope to have you on in the future again and to discuss. Once, once your next work is published. Okay, well, thank you so much, Declan, for having me. I really enjoyed it, and I look forward to coming back. Cool, thank you. Thank you. The LMU Global Policy Institute is an interdisciplinary think tank in Los Angeles that applies rigorous academic research to help solve global policy challenges. We thank you for joining us today and encourage you to stay connected through our social media channels, at LMUGPI.